Our first lesson comes from Acts chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire place where they were seated. Divided tongues as of fire appeared and lighted on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one heard them speaking in their own language. And they were amazed and astounded and said, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and and, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We all hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Would you believe it if I told you that you have everything you need for mission? Everything. You you have everything you need. You're not lacking anything to live into the mission that God has called you to. Because Pentecost tells us that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And therefore, you have everything you need to be on mission, to live out the calling that God has for you in this world. The problem is we often forget about the Holy Spirit. We say we're Trinitarian, three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, for many of us, as we live our lives, we are not very Trinitarian in our living. We're rather binitarian. We think about the Father, we think about the Son, and we forget about the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, we forget and we quench the power that God has poured into us to live on mission. Monica and I have been married 20 years just last month. She's a very patient woman. I can think of a particular moment of patience that began early on. Uh, It was 20 years ago. We were on our honeymoon. And as some of you have heard the story before, we were on our honeymoon and it just so happened that 20 years ago at this time, the new Star Wars movies were coming out. I mean, I had grown up on the original trilogy. My whole worldview had been formed as a child with Star Wars. And now I'm getting married and it just so happens that we're on our honeymoon and out comes episode one. Remember those horrible movies that came out about 20 years ago? Well, here's what was not horrible about it. Monica, I say to her on our honeymoon, I say, honey, we're about a week into our honeymoon. I said, you know, there's this thing tonight. And she said, yes, Star Wars, I know. And I said, I know it's our honeymoon, but what do you think about going and lining up all day to get tickets to see episode one opening night? 
And again, I think that was the moment when it was like through thick or through thin that was coming through her mind. And she says, yes, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll go line up. So we went and lined up for the day and I was so excited. And we got in and as bad as the movies were, here's what they did deliver. See, as a kid growing up with the Star Wars movies, right, we never got to see a Jedi, those powerful kind of, you know, agents of power. We never got to see an, a Jedi fully in their prime. We always got to see novice Jedis who were just learning, or we saw geriatric Jedis who could barely hold their lightsabers. You know, you never got to see the Jedi in their prime. And there it is, the opening scene, episode one, on our honeymoon. There's two Jedis, and they're doing backflips and doing everything, and together these two Jedis bring down an entire starship full of robots and droids. And I say, yes! And then I thought immediately, and here's how I redeem this story on a Sunday morning. I thought immediately, that is the picture. No joke. That's the picture of what the Holy Spirit life is supposed to look like. Did Christians believe that when the power of God comes into our life through the Holy Spirit, that we are suddenly able to live lives so much bigger, so much more faithful, so much more loving than is, here's the key, humanly possible. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and enables us to live lives that are impossible for us to live without his presence. But yet so often, we in the church don't believe it, do we? We shy away, we get fearful, we get tempted, and we put the mission and the Holy Spirit to the side. Let this Pentecost be a renewal moment for us all. You see, Luke tells us in this Pentecost narrative that the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost and therefore on the life of every believer that has the Holy Spirit that we see on Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit makes mission capable. That's the first thing that we see, the capability. Before the Holy Spirit comes, the church is not capable. They, they, they can't do this. They can't do what Jesus has called them to. Capable. But not just capable, the Holy Spirit, where we see in this narrative, makes the disciples able to have the character for mission. Not just the capability for mission, but the necessary character that a change has to happen on the inside. We need to live in a different kind of way if we're going to be like Christ in this world. And the Holy Spirit brings that. But not just capability and not just character, but Luke tells us the Holy Spirit puts compassion in the heart of the disciples. Compassion for the nations. Compassion for the lost. Compassion and a love and a desire to reach the world. First, the Holy Spirit gives us capability for mission. Uh, chapter 2 of Acts of the Apostles, if you're there with me, we see in verse 1, chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And you've got to stop there and realize, what is Luke saying? Pentecost begins with the whole church cloistered, clumped, private, all by themselves in one place. The church is not out in the world right now. The church is together behind closed doors. Now, let's be clear. They're doing what they were told to do. Jesus had told them at the ascension, Luke 24, verse 49, that you're to wait in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So obediently they're waiting. But let's just remember 
that the day of Pentecost begins with the church all by itself, not in the world, private, cloistered, closed, because they're unable to yet be on mission. They're unable yet to get out of those doors and get into the world because the Holy Spirit has not yet arrived. You see, the promise that Jesus said was coming, this Holy Spirit, Jesus had described to his disciples, and it's so important that we recognize this key word that describes the ministry and the person of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, verse 16, we read it just a moment ago. Jesus says to his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now that word helper, right, is the word in Greek paraclete. It's a description, it's a name, it's a title for the Holy Spirit. And, and your Bibles, like mine, may say helper, but your Bibles might translate it as advocate, counselor, comforter, because it is a word that implies all of that. My favorite translation, which I've yet to find a Bible that will publish it this way, is to call the paraclete, or translate the paraclete as your battle partner. Because that's what a paraclete was in the Greco-Roman world. Your battle partner. Para, coming alongside, kaleo, call. Coming alongside you in your call. You see, in the Roman army, for example, you had your paraclete, and your paraclete was the guy who was assigned to watch your back. The reason the Roman armies were so powerful is because they were the first ones in history and the Greeks, they learned some of it from the Greeks as well. So the Greeks and the Romans together learned that you don't fight on your own, you fight as a unit. And so your paraclete would be your partner. I'd have my shield and my sword. My paraclete partner would have his, his shield and his sword. We'd link arms together. I've got the front, he's got the back, and Virtually indestructible that way. You've got your wingman, you've got your shieldman, you've got your battle partner, your paraclete right beside you. And this description Jesus uses of the Holy Spirit is exactly right. The Holy Spirit comes to make us capable to do the mission because he will give us that strength and that power we need to live this life. He will have your back and he will be your helper, your comforter, your advocate, all those things. But I like battle partner incapable without your battle partner. And he comes into the life of every believer and says, you can actually fight this battle. You can stand before the forces of Satan, the world, and the flesh because your battle partner is with you. See, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon once said of the Holy Spirit that without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. And he's right. He goes on to say, we are ships without the wind. We are branches without sap. We are coals without fire. We are useless. So the disciples there huddled in that room are useless until verse two, suddenly a mighty sound from heaven filled the room. Wind, fire fell on that room and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the paraclete, their battle partner. I like that verse 4 says they were all filled. It doesn't say it was just a few. 
you know, the best of the best got the Holy Spirit, the rest, well, you'll just have to gather in behind. No, they all were filled, all the disciples. And remember who these disciples are. Ordinary people, ordinary sinners, broken people, just like you and me. They knew now that Jesus had died on the cross for their sins, that he'd been raised from the dead, giving them freedom over death. But they were still ordinary people, like you and me. But the Holy Spirit came on them all. See, this is modeled for us in the church as a reminder in what we wear. Everything we wear uh, on a Sunday morning as clergy and servers is always meant to reflect something back to the community. So you actually see something about yourself. The whites of the albs and the surpluses is always meant to say, we're not the pure ones. We are all made pure by the blood of the lamb, right? You're looking like in a mirror. Um, You'll notice I got new garb on today. Uh, I didn't mention it at the early service and that created a little bit of a crisis. So now I'm gonna mention it here. I'm I'm wearing new garb. I'm aware that I'm not dressed like I was last Sunday. I'm wearing a purple cassock and I'm dressing now like a global South Anglican dean of a cathedral. This is the way we dress because the purple is meant to be a reflection of being the representative of the bishop. The bishop wears purple and the dean wears purple to remind you it's royal, right? Royal, it doesn't say, oh, I'm royal. It says we are royal. We are the royal priesthood, right? This is what we've been made, ordinary broken people into a royal priesthood. When you see these things, they'll remind you. And my point is, look at the bishop. When you see a bishop, what does he wear on his head? It's, it's, it's called a mitre. It's his hat, right? And people have said, maybe it's not like his crown. Maybe. Do you know the best definition of what that hat is? Look at the shape. If you remember the bishop's mitre. It's a tongue of fire. The bishop is wearing a hat that looks like a tongue of fire to say, you all who are believers looking on the bishop see your infilling of the Holy Spirit. You are seeing that tongue of fire as a representative, as a mirror to you. Remember that the Holy Spirit is on you if you are in Christ. But not only does the Holy Spirit give us capability, I will say wearing the cassock is a lot warmer than wearing one layer. So if I start sweating, you'll understand. The Holy Spirit gives us not only capability, but also gives us character. See, it's not enough just to make us capable Something has to change on the inside of us. The world we live in is desperate to see some character lived out in front of them. We live in a world that communicates so fast and so much, but so little of it has good character. The world is hungry to see a different kind of character played out in front of them. See, it goes right back to the beginning with Israel. When God called Abram, before he was Abraham, when he was Abram, God said to him in Genesis 12, when he chose him, he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. And in some ways, we wish it kind of ended there, right? Great, you'll be with us. You'll bless those who bless us. You'll curse those who curse us. But he goes further. Because God has not called Abram just for Abram's sake. Verse 3 of Genesis 12, And through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
In other words, the reason God chooses this special people of Israel is in order for that chosen people to ultimately bless the whole world. That the nations would look in on God's chosen people, his display people, his special people in this world, and would say there's a different way that they live. There must be a God in Israel. There must be a different kind of God who dwells with those people because they live different, righteous, holy, generous lives. The problem is that even though Abram and all of Israel and all God's people are called to that, they consistently didn't live into it. It brings us to that moment, and this is important for Pentecost, on the base of Mount Sinai. Right? God has taken now his chosen people out of Egypt. And what does he do? He has Moses go up to the top of Mount Sinai. And as he's on Sinai, he's going to give Moses the law, the Ten Commandments and the whole law. And the whole idea is this is now going to be a written form that says, okay, here's how you live. Read the law, live this law, and you can live like the people I want you to be. Right? He's writing character on those stones. But here's what's important for Pentecost. When you turn to Exodus 19, and God is pouring out his call of character on Israel through these laws, we read this description of what happens on the mountain. Exodus 19, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. Here's the point of Sinai. When God is giving the law, this thing that's going to supposedly build character in us, how to live, Sinai is wrapped in fire and noise. Remember that. Fire and noise as God gives the law. Now again, even though God gives the law, what happens? Moses comes down the mountain and what are they doing at the base of the mountain? They're worshiping the golden calf. And what does Charlton Heston do with the Ten Commandments? What does Moses do? He breaks them on the base of the mountain. Why? Because he's having a hissy fit? No. He's being a prophet. Moses prophetically says, look, these laws are already broken before I've even read them to you. You cannot live by the letter of the law. Even though God has told us how we live, we just can't will ourselves to do it. Year after year, Israel continues to celebrate that moment of God giving the law at Sinai. And they hold a festival. It's the festival of the giving of the law. And do you know what they call that festival? The Feast of Weeks. First Fruits, also known as Pentecost. Pentecost was the year after year celebration of God giving the law on Sinai. But again, year after year, they're faced the reality, we just cannot live to the letter of this law. It made people like Ezekiel the prophet declare in God's name in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Something clearly needs to change here. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. In other words, the prophet Ezekiel saying, God needs to come down and literally give us a new heart and a new spirit so we might actually begin living the way he's called us to live. And then what happens 
on this day of Pentecost that Luke records here. Just weeks after Jesus had died and rose again and ascended, suddenly we read that a mighty wind from heaven filled with noise the entire place where they were seated and tongues of fire descended upon them. On the day of Pentecost, the celebrating of the giving of law, noise and fire came into that room. That room is the new Sinai. That room is the new moment where God will finally put his law, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I will pour out my spirit. I will help you live this law that you cannot live on your own by my spirit, by my strength. The letter of the law kills, the spirit gives life. See, the Lord in the giving of the spirit is pouring into us day by day the law, the way to live his life, but not living under the constraints of the written law, living in the freedom of the spirit and how God woos us and draws us. And you may walk in this morning on Pentecost and feel as far from the kind of character that God is calling to you as possible. You may look back at the last week or last month or last year and say, I have not lived into this character at all. And that's why we have forgiveness and repentance and a table to feed us and strengthen us every week. But know this, whether you feel you've lived into this character or not, the Holy Spirit dwells within you if you are in Christ. And he is wooing you to a new kind of spirit. Our world is desperate for this kind of character. One of my favorite stories of the early church we saw when we were in Greece just a few weeks back. We were in Thessaloniki and we found what is the remnants of the Hippodrome. Now, some of you may know the story of the Hippodrome massacre. In 390, Emperor Theodosius heard about a riot taking place in the Hippodrome. And so he sent his soldiers to kill the rioters. But after they left he changed his mind and sent an envoy to stop them, but the envoy didn't get there in time. And the massacre took place and 7,000 people were put to death in the Hippodrome. Emperor Theodosius, the king over the known world. What does Bishop Ambrose do? He excommunicates the emperor. The bishop excommunicates Theodosius. He says, you may not come and receive the sacraments until you come and repent and change your ways. And for eight months, Theodosius sits in his chambers weeping because he is cut off from the sacraments. And finally, because Ambrose will not bend, Theodosius comes and lays prostrate before the bishop and repents and changes the law and says, from now on, if ever a capital punishment is declared, you need 30 days of lag time before it is enacted. Ambrose and his courageous character stands before a corrupt tyrant and changes him. Our world is desperate for people of character. And the Holy Spirit, friends, on Pentecost pours it into you into me. But not only does he give us capability and character, but finally the Holy Spirit gives us the compassion that we need for mission. The heart 
that's required. See, a heart change of character is required, but also a heart for the other. I love the word compassion. We use it here at Christ Church as one of our four values. Worship, formation, belonging, and compassion. Because compassion has a a fullness to it as a word. In, In Matthew 9, for example, Jesus, you know, we're told, feels that compassion when he looks at the crowd and they're lost and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion, splankna in the Greek, it means Jesus was ripped up inside as he looked on the misery and the lostness of the world. That Jesus had a physiological, emotional, deep reaction when he saw the lost. And that compassion is precisely what the Holy Spirit pours into us in Pentecost. That we actually start caring about the plight of others, not just ourselves. I'll show you how that works. See, verse tongue, it's, see, verse four, it's, it's the speaking in tongues. That's the compassion. You may say, uh, how, how do you get compassion out of the speaking of tongues? Verse four, one of the most controversial uh, bits about the Acts of the Apostles. What do you do with the speaking of tongues? Verse four, they began to speak in other languages. Well, let's be clear. The Holy Spirit is enabling them to speak in other languages. This is different here in Acts chapter two than the angelic tongues that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. Because these tongues are actual understandable languages. That's why Luke goes to the trouble of explaining and listing, you know, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, and it goes on and on. He lists them because these nations are in Jerusalem and they hear a bunch of Galileans not speaking Aramaic, but speaking their own languages. And they understand it. And they hear of the mighty works of God. What gives? Well, here's my argument about compassion. It's compassion. It's a heart for the nations. Here's why. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 15 about the mouth? He says in Matthew 15 that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Right? That whatever comes out of your mouth is actually rooted in your heart. And so if on the day of Pentecost, a disciple suddenly starts speaking with his mouth the language of another nation, then it would seem that God had put that nation on the disciples' hearts. God has poured a nation of people. And by the way, nation today I think would be best translated as any socioeconomic ethnic people group. It doesn't need to be a nation state. Just any group that's not your group. Any group that's not you, that's different from you, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit pours out a compassionate heart, a love, a physiological deep reaction for the other. And this is a miracle. Don't think I'm downplaying the miracle of tongues to say this is actually compassion in their heart. It's a miracle to get a sinful, broken, turned inward person to actually care about someone else. Luther says our natural state before, uh, you know, as sinners is in Latin, in curvatus, in say, turned in on ourselves. That our natural state as sinners is we're turned in. It's all about me and my tribe. The day of Pentecost comes and all of a sudden I care about the other. I care about the one that's not like me at all. This is the gift of compassion that the Holy Spirit pours out in the church. This is why it's so important we expose all of ourselves, but especially our young people, to mission early on. We we sent Annabelle, our eldest, when she was 15, on the Guatemala stoving mission. 
This year, when I go to Rwanda in the fall, I'll be taking my 15-year-old Sophie because our theory is every time a kid of ours turns 15, they need to get into the mission field because my kids are desperately gonna learn that people in the rest of the world don't live like we live in Plano. They need to have an opportunity to feel the tugging of the Holy Spirit, that compassionate pull towards the other. This is why our students this summer are going on a mission trip. Our camp this summer at Christ Church, our mission camp is an actual mission service opportunity to train and give opportunity for our children to grow in this Holy Spirit call of compassion for the other. It is a gift. Would you believe if I told you that you have everything you need for mission? Because that's what Pentecost tells us. The Holy Spirit makes us capable, gives us character, and gives us the compassion for the other to be on mission. You may say, though, if this is true, then why isn't the church more on fire? Well, here's, as I said last week, the two truths the Bible holds up side by side as I close. You see, on the one truth the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit is that you can't be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 3 says... No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if you are heartfelt a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Truth number one. Truth number two, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Somehow mysteriously, though we cannot not have the Holy Spirit as Christians, we somehow can mysteriously quench the Holy Spirit through unrepentant sin, through unbelief in my own life, so often I quench the Holy Spirit by trying to domesticate the Holy Spirit, by trying to limit the Holy Spirit. Trying to say, okay, that's what you're calling me to, but let's be realistic here. Let's make it a manageable-sized call. Give you an example. I was reading through my journal the other day. What does it look like just when a person begins after many years of quenching the Holy Spirit, to begin just baby steps, beginning to determine, I'm not going to quench the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to domesticate the Holy Spirit. Well, I was reading through my journal the other day, March 7th, 2012, right? Seven years ago. March 7th, 2012. This is what it says. In flight from the Anglican 1000 Conference at Christ Church, Plano, Texas. I feel like I woke up at this conference, I wrote, like I'm coming out of a fog. For far too long, I have been limiting your call on my life, playing it safe. I prayed at the conference that I would stop quenching the Holy Spirit's call. So whatever it is, Lord, where you lead me, I will follow. March 7th, 2012. That was incredible in of itself. I prayed that prayer in the fellowship hall over here long before I ever knew I'd be coming to Christ Church. Just baby steps. Stop quenching the spirit, Paul. But here's what's amazing. I looked at the date and said, that sounds familiar. So I had to flip to a few other journals and came to another March 7th. March 7th, same day. Exactly to the day, four years later. March 7th, 2016. In flight from Christ Church, Plano, Rector interview weekend. Same date. And what did I write there? 
It looks like you're calling me to Plano. Where you lead, I will follow. When we begin to say yes to the Holy Spirit, when we begin that act of repentance to stop trying to limit the Holy Spirit's call in our life, just be aware. He may more than change your zip code. He may change your immigration status. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.